This is an ABC podcast. Just a warning before we start. This episode contains some strong language. It's August 2005, on the cusp of Melbourne Spring, and Nicola Gobbo is on her way to the Magistrates Court in the centre of the city. She's due at what should be a run-of-the-mill bail application, but she's having a sort of internal crisis. That sounds ridiculous to even say this, but I wanted a tram to hit me on the way to court that morning because I could not work out how to not disappoint anyone or how to not let anyone down and how to get out of that mess. Well, probably in a way that meant I didn't have to stand up to anyone, which seems to be what I had an inability to do. After years of trying to please everyone in her working life, the people she's trying to defend, the gangland bosses who pay many of the bills, she just can't do it anymore. This has been building up for a long time. A year earlier, she'd helped a hitman roll on Carl Williams, and she'd been questioned over what she knew about the Hodson murders. Right after that, she suffered a stroke. Most likely caused by a tiny blood clot coming off the edge of a hole in my heart that nobody ever knew that I actually had. Nicola survived, but she was left with permanent facial pain. It was a warning from her body to slow down. I should have probably ceased work. Had the the strength, I don't know if strength's the right word, but I walked away from everything. Instead of using the stroke as a reason to slow down, she went back to the same intense work ethic the same clients, the same dilemmas. And today, she has a particularly tricky dilemma. Tony Mockbell has asked her to represent one of his underlings. Tony had had jumped up and down about me going to see him and getting him out. This guy was arrested on drugs charges. The tricky thing is, Nicola knows that his best play might be to spill the beans on Tony Mockbell in return for a lighter sentence. But by now, Nicola knows the drill. Tony Mockbell sends her clients like this guy, and they keep quiet. They were underlings for him. They were manufacturing for him or packaging drugs or or couriers, whatever their roles may have been. They were firstly indebted and or scared of him. So they were hardly going to tell me, Tony said not to tell you this, but we're going to tell you anyway. She can't give them a fair and fearless defence without compromising Tony Mockbell and his drug operations. It's not like this is the first time Nicola's been in this situation. She's been here before, many times. But today, for some reason, this conflict of interest triggers a meltdown. I can vividly remember thinking, I just can't keep going, I can't do this anymore. Feeling I, I had wanted some way out. Before turning up at court, she'd already done something rash. She'd called the detective working this case and admitted that she shouldn't be representing this guy, that it wasn't in his best interest to have her as his lawyer. She told the detective that Mockbell pressured her to take the case. When Nicola arrives at court, she finds out that the hearing's been postponed. But that detective she spoke to on the phone is there, standing dark-suited with his colleague outside the courtroom. And at that moment, she makes a snap decision that'll change her life. Right there, in the middle of the very public morning bustle, it all comes tumbling out. 
she starts telling them just how Tony Mockbell has been using her. She was upset. She was, she was visibly upset. She was stressed by the position she was in. He was a defence barrister telling the opposition that basically Tony Mockbell was using her to keep people quiet, to gather information. The detective told the Royal Commission that he was wondering if this could even constitute a crime, perverting the course of justice. He could not believe what he was hearing. The disbelief is that she's then basically divulging all that, confessing it, whatever word you want to use, right there to us, for people that she didn't even know. This is season two of Trace, The Informer. I'm Rachel Brown. When Nicola Gobbo broke down in front of those two police officers, she was looking for an escape. I'm here because I've had enough. I've had enough. And I don't have a way out. But instead of helping to pull her out of the quicksand, the detectives proposed that she wade even deeper into the sordid world she'd become part of. Victoria Police signs her up as an informer. We're investigators. We're not running a, a, a daycare clinic. When you're stuck in hell, keep going. She'll become a spy for police, risking her life every day while representing some of the heaviest crooks in Australia. I felt like a piece of crap for betraying him. We had more contact with her than any other source. I could do something 150% or don't do it at all. This is episode four, Rubicon, the point of no return. Her and others were just making a mockery of the of the system for years. And for whatever reason, on that day, it bubbled to the surface. Paul Rowe was with his drug squad sergeant, Steve Mansell, when they watched Nicola Gobbo have a meltdown at court that day. She relays in you know, detail to the extent of the, the pressure she was under, the stress, her health issues, her concerns about committing offences, her worry about her reputation, her worry about her safety. Paul Rowe told the Royal Commission Nicola Gobbo had been a thorn in the side of police for years. So much so, his boss had mused about bugging her phone. Another senior officer had even proposed visiting her in hospital after her stroke, thinking she might be vulnerable enough to divulge some information. Seems like the force wanted to either investigate her or use her. And now... Here she was just pouring her heart out in front of them. She was 100% looking for a way out of that environment where she was felt compelled to do these things on behalf of people that, let's face it, were uh, involved in serious organised crime for many, many years. Um, Homicides, large-scale drug trafficking, and... Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that she doesn't have a level of responsibility for her own behaviour, but she was under enormous pressure and looking for a, a, a way out, a hand of friendship. This hand of friendship, extended by detectives Rowan Mansell, was a lifeline for Nicola Gobbo and a windfall for police. But both sides were crossing a threshold. He was a lawyer in a state of distress, doing something that a lawyer probably shouldn't do, spilling the beans on her own client. It was the start of a relationship between Nicola and the police that would lead to an ethical and legal quagmire, and eventually, a royal commission. 
but none of them knew that back then. That day, what Nicola and the police saw was the benefits of cooperation. Detective Sergeant Mansell told her, you should get on board, as in, you should keep sharing information with us. But was Nicola Gobbo in the right frame of mind to be getting on board? At the Royal Commission, even the Commissioner interjected to ask Detective Rowe. Did you consider that she may have been emotionally unstable? It was such a strange reaction from a lawyer. It wasn't emotionally unstable. I mean, she was... She wasn't hysterical. She was... She had tears running down her cheeks and... Um, but she wasn't sobbing wildly. She was just really stressed. Detective Rowe bristled at having to defend his decisions from 15 years ago. It's been common, this defensiveness, from the procession of officers through the witness box. It's almost like there's an air of, I had to make split-second decisions, some that could have meant life or death. You wouldn't understand. Detective Rowe told the Commission, Nicola's information... It was so good it would have been wrong to turn it down. So she gets aware of 15 million ecstasy tablets. Do we just let that go? Counsel assisting the commission wasn't going to let him get off that easily. Do you not see that that is in complete yeah. conflict, no. that she's acting for someone and no. she's working for the police? I know the point you're trying to make, but my point is... It's a simple point, isn't it? It's simple if you only consider it, if you consider it in a vacuum. Would it be if, 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 if what you're saying is that as the Victoria Police, we should allow 15 million ecstasy tablets just to spill out onto the streets, well then, if someone says that that's what we were supposed to do, I'm not sure what I say. As for whether it was ethical for Nicola Gobu to be sharing this information, well, he said that was her problem to worry about. Ultimately, it relies on her own ethical considerations and her own decision-making in relation to who she represents. And no obligation, no responsibility by Victoria Police at all? Victoria Police, to a certain extent, is damned if they do and damned if they don't. If there's criminal activity, 15 million ecstasy tablets going to hit the street, well, then we need to deal with it. If Nicola Gobbo had found her way into a conflicted position, Detective Rory said it wasn't up to him to tell her to walk away. We're, like, we're investigators. We're not running a, a, a daycare clinic for a barrister that's lost her way. She's a grown woman. She's a barrister. She's not a a delicate flower. She was happy to mix in the circles of some fairly serious people. Um, I don't think she needs me to advise her where to to ride off into the sunset. Instead of riding off into the sunset, Nicola Gobbo rode off in their police car later that afternoon. The Royal Commission heard that Nicola gave them more information on Tony Mockbell about how he'd conceal assets, about her concern her fees might be paid with proceeds of crime, and her fear she might even be charged herself. This was heavy stuff. So Nicola was handballed to a secret unit, set up especially to manage informers. A couple of weeks later, detectives Rowe and Nansel bring Nicola to meet with this secret unit. The guy who set up this unit, an officer with the very pure-sounding pseudonym of Sandy White, will assess whether she's suitable to become a proper signed-up informer. His unit is so secretive, most people don't even know that it exists, much less who works for it. These police were all about how it's, it's all about safety and security and we double-check everything and triple-check and, you know, you've got to be 
Um, you've got to make sure that nobody follows you or could be following you. So we've got to, you've got to drive a certain way and, and go a certain way to get to a particular place where we'll meet you. And ironically, the place that they held that first meeting was in a building adjacent to Tony Mockbell's penthouse apartment. And I just thought, this is, this is madness. Are these people for real? This supposedly elite unit presumably doesn't have a clue it's summoned Nicola so close to the very person she's about to start informing on. Waiting for her inside the building is Sandy White and Peter Smith. She's not allowed to know their real names or their police departments. They mightn't even be cops for all she knows. 16th of September 2005. Waiting to see a new source brought here by members of MDID. We need to name them. We're blatantly obvious anyway. If anyone ever does listen to this recording, that it's Nicola Gobbo. This meeting is recorded by Victoria Police, and like a lot of covert recordings, it's a bit scratchy. Nicola knocks on the door and enters the room. A cup of tea is offered. Nicola jokes that she might need something a little stronger. A couple of bottles of red would be good. <laughs> Understandably, she's worried. I'm dealing with someone who scares me enough that no matter what you people do, if anyone found out about it, I'm just, nothing you can do will will, um, protect me. If this gets out, she's dead. I'm here because I've had enough. I really, I've had enough. Um, And I don't know the way out. She feels like she has no choice but to trust them. But this meeting, this whole relationship, starts with a lie. Has this been recorded? Nicola says she doesn't want the conversation recorded. Sandy White promises he won't start a tape recorder, but a tape is already rolling, and will be, for the next two and a half hours. It doesn't take long for Sandy White to get to the big question. Tell me everything you know about Tony Mockbell, he says. I want to point out that these officers, who will become her police handlers, they've only just met her and are already asking questions that could lead her dangerously close to breaching legal privilege. Legal privilege protects what's said between a lawyer and a client. It's supposed to be secret. It's a no-go zone for cops. They're not supposed to know about those conversations. Why? Well, if people accused of a crime can't trust their own lawyer... They can't get a fair defence. And if people can't get a fair defence, the whole justice system collapses. What Nicola is doing risks robbing her clients of impartial legal representation. And Victoria Police is encouraging it because they're desperate to hear what Nicola's about to tell them. She tells them about Tony Mockbell's burner phones, phones registered in fake names. He's got about 12 mobile phones. She says he owes a lot of people money. But it doesn't matter, because no one can touch him. Well, no, no one will ever knock him off his perch, even though he owes stacks of money everywhere, because everyone knows you killed him, the brothers will kill you. Sandy White's assessment is blunt. Nicola's relationship with Tony Mockbell can only end one of two ways for Nicola. Your relationship with Tony and the others, um, you can have one ending. She finishes his sentence. And his jail was really death. Jail or death? But what if Tony Mockbell gets locked up instead? The best way to deal with him for you is that he gets locked up. Yep. 
Nicola suggests a strategy to nail Tony Mockbell. Send in an undercover cop and try to catch him doing something illegal. A bribe, money, tapes, information. Um, I think all police officers are a joke. Nicola is so sick of the Mockbell family that she's on a weird blind date, unloading on complete strangers who she's trusting, quite literally, with her life. It's strange hearing this tape. It just seems so intimate. You can hear how relieved she is to finally talk with someone about all this. A pressure valve release. She even jokes with them that one day it'll make for a bestseller. It's the great, it'll make um, a great unreal, story it? one day. If anyone uh, ever, ever that's, writes a... Well, that's the book we're never going to write. She jokes about cutting back to two days a week or finding a sugar daddy. Daydreams about running another business like a car wash. Then she lets them in on something very close to home. It sounds like she's almost crying. 32, I'm nearly 33. What have I done with my life? What am I doing? I've had a stroke. My day is every, at the moment, I I get up at six six o'clock and I go to work by seven or quarter past seven. Spend all day working. Very rarely don't go anywhere and do anything. For what? To work all weekend? I know that if I was married or if I had some particular reasons to embrace every night I would. But the rate I'm going, I'm going to end up dead. When I meet up with Nicola Gobbo, after months of wrangling to get her in this seat opposite me, after eight months of laborious hearings in the Royal Commission, I have a million questions. But really, just one big one. Why? Why? Why be an informer? Um, It's a complicated, messy, misreported, misunderstood thing, but the reality is that it was probably a perfect storm and I felt morally and ethically challenged. When you uh, find yourself in a position where people who you are either acting for or to whom you've been introduced are being shot and and or murdered on a weekly basis and you're being pre-warned about those things taking place, to not do anything when you have that knowledge is something that I morally had an issue with. The police were offering her a way out, but I wondered whether they had compromising information they could use against her. You ended up saying you would work with them. Were they holding anything over you? I genuinely don't believe that I had committed a crime, but I made the assumption that, as, as a number of lawyers did, that our phones were being unlawfully monitored and that, of course, pe- pe- things can be taken out of context. So I think the police, they certainly gave people such as myself the impression that they had stuff that they would use. You, you did have a choice. You could have walked away. I felt like I couldn't walk away not without consequences anyway. Nicola had been gradually getting used to the idea of sharing information with police too. She'd previously developed a relationship with police when she represented the hitman who rolled on Carl Williams. And since then, she'd thrown some crumbs of gossip to police to help them out. But that was all pretty insignificant compared to what she was about to do. In September 2005, Nicola Gobbo was formally signed up as a police informer 
Her codename? 3838. Incredibly, the police were so worried about the secret getting out, they didn't even consult their own lawyers before going ahead. For the first known time in Australia, a lawyer was made an agent of the police. And so began one of the weirdest working relationships imaginable. Even at the best of times, it's a delicate dance, that of a cop and their informer. It's usually a tango of necessity and suspicion. But already, at their first meeting, Nicola Gobbo was talking to her police handlers like they were mates. The one she grew closest to was Sandy White. We'll start the link with the witness using the pseudonym Sandy White. Uh, Good morning, Commissioner. People like Sandy are trained to be suspicious of their own sources. There's a saying in Sandy's unit, informers are the great corruptors. I mean, perhaps you might say it's the job of the police never really to wholly trust a source. That's the... Yes, that's a very good operating principle. Yes. I don't think in relation to Ms Gobbo, um, she was in a different category to most of our sources who were serious criminal figures and there was an expectation that they would definitely do the wrong thing. But for Sandy White, Nicola Gobbo was a different proposition. He may be one of the few people in the world who's come to know Nicola Gobbo well. He got inside her head and he liked her. I think we all got on pretty well with Miss Gobbo. We had a a lot of respect for her. And bear in mind she was quite different from our usual customer. They got to know each other's quirks. Sandy says she had a good sense of humour. She could be uh, quite a shit stirrer. Quite a shit stirrer. She'd ask her handlers for tickets to concerts like Pink or Lionel Richie. Uh, was, she, was she joking when she was saying she wanted concert tickets to you or was that a serious request that you understood it to be? Sometimes. Some, sometimes it was a recurring joke. Other times it was serious. And Sandy came to know that she had nostalgic tendencies. She was one of these people that is um, very much into anniversaries of things. He recognised in her a desperate need to be needed. We had more contact with her than any other source, quite a lot more than any other source. And that wasn't all related to intelligence that she wanted to provide. Oftentimes, I think it was just uh, a welfare type of chat. Uh, So I think she was needy from that point of view. She could be uh, a bit of a drama queen at times. She would uh, totally exaggerate something and then when you point that out, she'd, she'd come back to something normal. I'm not saying these are necessarily bad traits, yes. but she didn't have, seem to have any social life. Everything revolved around work and she'd be working at some very late hours. And of course the lines, well in our view, the lines between her work and meeting with criminals were very blurred. Yes. Now I think, in, and again, I certainly don't want to be seen to be claiming to have any psychological expertise, but I do think her whole um, all her sort of social needs were provided by serious criminals and then over time that transferred to the source handlers. Effectively, the source handlers became Nicola's new social circle and Sandy White filled a particular void in her life. Nicola's the first to admit it. You lost your father at quite a young age when you were at school and one of the comments you made that I've heard in the Royal Commission is that you thought of operative, uh, one of the operatives as a father figure. There's definitely always been um, a level of insecurity 
where I'm concerned because of not having a dad. And um, not necessarily, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't use the expression being attracted to, not attracted in, in terms of sexual attraction or intimate attraction, mm -hmm. but being drawn to trusting people who uh, appear to be very old-fashioned and genuinely caring, and he was the right age group. Nicola's strong work ethic now had a new focus, informing. Either do something 150% or don't do it at all. Nicola was calling police so often that she needed multiple handlers, not just Sandy. When the team was given this new source, 3838, they did not know what hit them. As the handlers told the Royal Commission, they didn't get a drip feed of information. They got a whole damn flood. Her telling me what she's doing. Yeah, and me just writing down the notes as they come belting down the phone at me. It wasn't unusual for uh, Ms Gobbo to be ringing 10 plus times a day. Oh, mate, 10 might be a slight exaggeration, but you're pretty close. It was it that um, volume that was one of the reasons why handlers were rotated with Ms Gobbo? Yes. I can empathise. In the thick of our contact with Nicola, my reporting partner Josie Taylor and I had to take it in shifts. She was on days, me nights. And I don't mean this disparagingly either. Nicola had a lot of heavy stuff going on. The thing is, when Nicola's under pressure, she doesn't go quiet or back off. It seems like she always dives in deeper. I suppose what Winston Churchill once said is apt when you're stuck in hell, keep going. Yeah, certainly she wanted to impress. Um, she had a very large ego and this, this is certainly consistent with her wanting to be told that she's the best. And she did have ambitions um, to be the best that she could and probably the, the best for Victoria Fights. The handlers saw her as needy, but Nicola says they were the incessant ones. And I had Victoria Police on my back every day saying to me, not in these exact words, but saying to me, don't, don't filter anything, you tell us everything and let us work out what's relevant and what's not relevant. And if you lie to us or you don't tell us things, we will know that you're lying to us. What confuses me a little is that within six months of becoming an informer, one of the main pressures that led her to signing up disappeared. Tony Mockbell vanished. Tony Mockbell jumped bail 12 days ago and hasn't been heard of or seen since. Police think he's still alive. They just don't know where he is. He absconded while on bail for drugs charges. He'd eventually get on a yacht in Western Australia and escape to Greece. Nicola's police handlers reported that her demeanour changed. She was visibly happier. Surely now she was out of danger. She could walk away from all this. Well, not quite, says one of her handlers. Tony Mockbell still had power in Melbourne. Uh, and it wasn't just Tony Mockbell, it was the whole, his whole group, including his uh, brothers, that were exerting influence and trying to control uh, what the source did with clients and what have you. And I think that's, it was, it's like you, like you didn't flick a switch and say that suddenly stopped. Still, I can't help but think that this was another potential off-ramp for Nicola Gobbo. But instead, she kept careening forwards. And soon... She'd be informing on one of her old friends. 
Sourcing, making and distributing drugs in huge quantities isn't an easy job. A lot of different people with different skills need to be involved. And one of the skilled operators in Tony Mockbell's supply chain would be Nicola's next target. For legal reasons, we can't say exactly what he did. This guy was a bit of a loner. He wasn't close to many people. But he did consider Nicola Gobbo a confidant. Initially, he'd reached out for legal advice. Then they became friends. When she became a police informer, she kept the relationship going. And she started to tell the police everything her friend told her. Her handlers would type up notes, which have been given to the Royal Commission. 3838 feels sympathy for the situation, being that he cannot break away from the mockdowns. They both felt trapped in the same web. And it seems like Nicola genuinely felt for this guy, even though she was informing on him. I was spending a lot more time than him and yeah. we were yeah. a lot closer. Yeah, and yeah. you were encouraged to, weren't you? Yes, of course. They became so close, she had nicknames for him. Nickname given by 3838 is Lamb Chops and Fiancé. You can probably see where this is heading. Lamb Chop developed a crush on Nicola. She told police that he'd become infatuated with her. He'd said he loved her. Attempted to kiss 3838 at the conclusion of the meeting. 3838 worried the cocktease approach will not last much longer at keeping close. Her police handlers told the Royal Commission they didn't instruct Nicola Gobbo to use sexual means to tease out information. But they clearly knew the two were close. Nicola felt torn about the whole situation. She swung wildly between guilt at turning Lamb Chop in and resolve that it was in his best interests. 3838 feeling depressed, feels guilty about disclosing activities to police. Reminded 3838 that the cooperation is voluntary, 3838 can cease assistance at any time. I can remember one of the very senior members of Piranha saying to me when I was in tears because of my guilt and because I felt, I felt like a piece of crap for betraying him, the very senior members of Piranha saying, no, you're actually doing him a huge service because if not for you, he would either be spending the rest of his life behind bars or he would have a bullet in his head. So she continued to work carefully against him, feeding back to her handlers his activities, vulnerabilities, his finances, and she says they were keen to hear it all. Nicola even organised his birthday party and passed onto her handlers the mobile numbers from RSVPs and photographs of the criminal guest list. It was a busy night. 150 turned up. Tony Rockwell did not show. 3838 did a speech. 3838 won the dance competition. But the police didn't just want party snaps. They wanted convictions. And there was one piece of information they wanted more than anything else. The location of one of the crew's drug labs. It was a specific issue that Victoria Police tasked me with finding on the basis that it could blow up, potentially causing harm to innocent people. It was the kind of information that Lamb Chop was privy to. And one night, he let it slip. It was um, during an alcohol fueled drug fueled conversation with him where he 
bragged about this amazing location that happened to be adjacent to a suburban primary school. The police swooped and Lamb Chop was in deep trouble. When you tell this story to lawyers, they're horrified. Surely Lamb Chop was entitled to assume if he was talking to his lawyer, the conversation would remain secret. Do you believe in the concept of legal privilege? Yes, Rachel, I do. Then how could you betray your clients? Well, I think it's been grossly misreported and is perhaps misunderstood. Nicola argues that not everything a client says is automatically covered by legal professional privilege. I don't know that um, anyone could legitimately say that uh, a conversation that took place at one o'clock in the morning where he's blind, drunk and definitely behaving in an inappropriate fashion could be the subject of privilege. She says unless a client is seeking advice on their case, well, privilege doesn't apply and all bets are off. Most people would think that they would walk into a room and talk to you and every conversation is privileged. That's not what the law is. I ran this past a bunch of lawyers and I got some pretty different answers. Some say Nicola's argument is rubbish. Others say, you know, she kind of has a point. So in the end, I asked the ethics board of the Bar Council, which is supposed to be the font of all knowledge on this stuff. The council's reply? Everyone is entitled to assume that the whole of a conversation with their barrister is confidential. So, simple. What Nicola did was wrong. But maybe not. The council goes on to say there are some exceptions. Like if the information is already in the public domain. Or if the client provides informed consent. Or if a barrister believes there's an imminent risk to any person's safety. And as you've heard earlier... Nicola says Victoria Police was worried the drug lab could blow up and injure people. What happened next, though, is far harder for Nicola to explain. After Lamb Chop was arrested, Nicola did something to take the conflict of interest to a whole new level, something that would even freak out the cops. Before Lamb Chop was arrested... Nicola and her police handlers discussed how would it all go down. They wanted to ensure he'd realise a long jail stint was inevitable. By the time I get there, that he should know he's totally, completely fine. That way, he'd be desperate to cut a deal. And then, hopefully, he'd spill the beans on the whole Tony Mockbell operation. Thing is, though, Sandy White knows there's a glaring problem. When Lamb Chop is arrested, Nicola will be the first person he'll call. He'll expect her to come to the police station and advise him. But as soon as she walks through the door of that police station, she'll be conflicted. How, how does that work? If, if you represent him whilst at the same time you've been instrumental in his uh, apprehension... Oh. How can you represent him when you've been instrumental in his apprehension, says Sandy. Yeah, that's one of the things that me up at night. It keeps her up at night, she says. It seems like they were all worrying it was wrong. Wouldn't it be the case down the track that... No, 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 what's the real With just the general ethics of the whole situation... The general ethics of all of this is fucked. It was one thing for a lawyer to turn informer. It was another thing for a lawyer to dob someone in and then continue to represent them. And it was a whole other thing for the cops to allow any of this. Her handlers claim they tried to stop her. Turn your phone off when he's arrested, they suggested. 
don't go to the police station to advise him. But she was a force to be reckoned with. Nicola said if she didn't go and advise Lambchop, he or his boss, Tony Mockbell, would sniff something was up. She was defiant. She was heading into that police station come hell or high water. Or conflict. Do you accept that you were, an, uh, in effect, an agent of the police and not an independent uh, legal practitioner providing him with legal advice? Yes, I accept I was an agent of the police. In the next episode, the police consider arresting their own informer to rein her in. I suggest you said that you wanted the challenge and you needed the excitement of being an informer. They would say that I wanted to keep going, but they were, you know, they just kept moving the goalposts. Season two of Trace, The Informer, is hosted by me, Rachel Brown. My reporting partner is Josie Taylor. Supervising producer for post-production is Tim Roxborough. Our producer is Yasmin Parry. Producer for the 7.30 interview was Chris Gillette. Camera, photos and sound on that interview by Greg Nelson. We get production support from Will Ockenden. Fact-checking and research by Alexander Tai. And our sound design and theme composition was done by Martin Peralta. Additional music by Seapelt, Nicole Carroll, Jacob Richards, Superspy, Land Systems, Lost Few, Lincoln J.K. Webber, Edo and Arnold, and Martin Peralta. If you like Trace, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they land.